sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about how the United States uh, lie at the root of global inflation. We'll also be discussing uh, the path towards making socialist revolution here in the United States and much, much more. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by John Ross, the senior fellow at the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at the Renmin University of China and author of the book China's Great Road, Lessons from Marxist Theory and Socialist Practices. Mr. Ross, thanks so much for joining us. Very pleased to be here. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Mr. Ross, and the issue of global inflation is impacting economies and people's lives uh, all over the world, uh, including in the United States and other economies in the global north who are trying to control this inflation by raising interest rates rapidly. Now, what we're told here in the U.S. is that uh, the root of this global inflationary problem problem is the war in Ukraine and uses this narrative to uh, uh, justify the idea that other countries should join Washington uh, against Russia. But you recently published a piece uh, describing how the uh, issue of global inflation, in reality, it's uh, source is rooted in the U.S. and not in Ukraine. And so, Mr. Ross, I was hoping you could just help us understand uh, just how that is. How is the U.S. Uh, uh, sort of at the root of this global inflationary problem, and uh, what are some of the impacts? Well, the way that you can show that the um, war is not, the Ukraine is not the cause of the uh, inflation is totally simple. Just look at the dates. The the invasion of um Ukraine started on the 24th of February 2022, but 90% of the inflation in the US had already taken place before that date. I mean, incidentally, I assume you know a few minutes ago, the new data came out in the US for continuing high inflation, 8.2% inflation and 6.6% core inflation. So therefore, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's just a straightforward lie to say that it Cause that the U.S. prices have already gone up to by seven point, have risen to seven point five percent before the war started. So you have to look at what really caused uh, the um, inflation in the United States. It's because the United States faces a very big uh, problem. The inflation means that demand is higher than supply, so prices go up. Uh, as the supply is not going up very much in the United States, some aspect of demand is going to have to be cut. And the big social question is which is going to be cut? Is it going to be, for example, US military spending, which is the biggest, bigger than the next nine countries in the world put together? That would, could be cut without any damage to the people of the United States, but it would mean a change in US foreign policy. Or is it the grotesquely inefficient US private healthcare system? which on the latest data accounts for 19.7%. That's almost a fifth of the U.S. economy and produces a life expectancy, which is six years lower than any other advanced economy. So, again, this healthcare system, the private healthcare system, could be replaced or sorted out without doing any damage to the um, 
US population. But if you want to, if you want to change foreign policy or you want to get rid of this absurdly inefficient healthcare system, you'd have to tackle various vested interests in the United States. If you're not going to do that, which the US government is not intent upon doing it, the only way you can do that is then is to cut the living standards of ordinary people. That is, you cut wages. And inflation is the way you do it. By, as John Maynard Keynes explained, um, you know, it's difficult to cut. But if you go to somebody and say, I want a 10% cut in your wages, you know, nominal wages, it's going to like to be resistance and you can resist individual employers. But the workers in an individual factory can't negotiate about what the inflation rate is. So, therefore, they're going to be – you hit people better by inflation, but the effect is the same. It's to cut wages. So, what really is happening in the U.S. is there refuses to be – there's a refusal to deal with either the healthcare system or the military spending. Therefore, wages are going to be cut. I could give you technical explanations how that's done. It's done by increasing the money supply at 26% a year and having a budget deficit of 26% of GDP and other things like that. But I won't bore your – readers, um, listeners with all that, the most important thing is to understand what it's done. It's because there's a refusal to tackle vested interests in the United States. Therefore, they've decided that wages are going to be cut and inflation's the way that they're going to do it. It's just a lie. 90% of the explanation, the 9% of the inflation in the US took place before a single bullet was fired in the Ukraine. Absolutely. And that's actually a point I wanted to, to highlight, the fact that more than 90 percent of uh, this inflation took place before uh, uh, Russia's invasion, because this is something, among many things, that is completely obscured uh, from the popular consciousness of the people in the United States, precisely because it, it problematizes the narrative emanating from a U.S. imperialism that these different issues are rooted in Moscow and in the Kremlin. And therefore, this justifies uh, the U.S.'s ongoing uh, aggression. And I appreciate how you broke down the social role of inflation, Mr. Ross, and noting about how uh, the way that uh, the U.S., uh, particularly in terms of its uh, military spending, has a detrimental impact on the living standards of the people of the United States, which is also something that I think is is, is not uh, acknowledged here in this country. Country, although I do get the feeling that there's an increasing kind of frustration for what seems to be endless money being funneled uh, into uh, Ukraine. Uh, meanwhile, the price of everything is going up. Uh, wages are stagnating. We don't even have enough formula in this country uh, to feed the babies. But we're told that it's uh, everyone else's fault. And I also wanted to uh, touch on something you noted in your piece, Mr. Ross, about the uh, political impacts of this, particularly in uh, the global South and and how, well, first of all, when we talk about the global South, uh, I feel like a lot of times we're talking about countries who uh, uh, generally have uh, less income than countries like uh, the United States or the governments of uh, Western Europe and things like that. And uh, I'm wondering if you could explain, you know, how does this reflect politically on what we see in that part of the world? Well, the yeah, just to go back to your starting point, the question is obviously who is who is causing this problem? If you think it's the Ukraine war, then Russia's causing the problem, but it's a lie. If you think, and therefore what is happening is everybody should unite with the United States against Russia. If you see that this situation is caused by the US, then on the contrary, everybody should unite against the, what the US uh, government is doing. Now, let's come on to the question you ask. The, the problem is that the global South has even less control over the situation than, the, for example, 
example, the situation of the countries and the population in the global north, because they're hit by a number of whammies. Firstly, because of the fact that they are the the US high interest rates, which are supposed to control the inflation, they they're not very successful in controlling the inflation, incidentally, is putting the US economy into towards a recession, which cuts the, the markets for exports from the global south. Uh, secondly, the dollar is very high because of the high interest rates. And therefore, as the imports from the global south are priced in dollars, that means they become more expensive in their, in their national currencies. And, and then also, because of the high interest rates, it sucks money out of their economies towards the United States. So therefore, they're hit by multiple whammies, which are even worse than global north. And, and you can see that very clearly in the figures. If you take uh, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East, which is the core of the global south, um, more than 40% of the countries in these regions have, have um, uh, inflation more than 10%. And 10% is definitely a de destabilizing um, uh, inflation rate. So what happened is you, they, 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 the global south gets hit even more than the global north by the inflation. And this creates not merely discontent, but it creates a riot, so for, as we saw, for example, in Sri Lanka, or it creates uh, a regime change um, in various countries. So the political consequences in the global south are even more extreme than in the global north, and they're pretty unpleasant in the global north. Yeah, and I wanted to swing back around to uh, what you mentioned a moment ago, Mr. Ross, in terms of health care in the United States uh, specifically, because you, you were talking about life expectancy. And I actually just want to quote this sentence here from your piece, because you say the U.S. spends a higher proportion on health care as a share of its economy than any other economy in the world. But the U.S. life expectancy is only 77 years compared to an average of 83 years in other high income economies. And I mean, my question is, like, how is that so? How is it that healthcare gets that kind of share um, in the U.S. Uh, economy uh, relative to others, but yet the the, the social consequence is, is not as high? Yeah, the, the economists know that life expectancy is the best indicator of overall social conditions because it takes all the good things. That is, you, you've got a good income, you've got good health care, you've got good education, you've got good environmental protection, takes out all the negative ones. You're poor, you have bad, ed bad education, you have bad health care, the environment is totally polluted, etc., and produces you a single number. Therefore, you can compare them, and it's good because it's not a theoretical measure. It's the real life of people. People, so to speak, are doing the arithmetic uh, with their own bodies. Now, as, as you would expect from that, therefore, countries with high incomes have higher uh, life expectancies in general than poor countries. In, in fact, between the high-income economy and, the, and the, poor, the poorest economies, it's a 19 years difference. It's a huge one. Okay. But Within the high-income economies, what is striking is that the United States, which has got about almost the highest per capita GDP, people live six years less than in other, the average for advanced countries. This means that the overall social conditions in the United States are very bad. I mean, the pop, this is carefully concealed because um, it would tell you, apart from go, instead of going on about you know being the greatest country in the world and so on and so forth, you you have to ask the question: Why does the average American live six years less than the uh, population of income of countries with uh, roughly equivalent incomes? Even more extraordinary now is that some countries in the global south now live longer than Americans. Cuba has done for some time. The average Cuban lives longer than the average American. Uh, but the uh, 
possibly the most striking one is that the average life expectancy in China is now longer than the average life expectancy in the United States, according to the new data which is coming out of the United States. So what this is telling you is that the overall social conditions in the United States are terrible. And the fact that you have a few hospitals uh, private, which make a profit, which have very good surgical facilities or something, which is true, does not compensate for the fact that because it doesn't have a public healthcare system in the United States, it doesn't protect the people. And you and it just has to conceal these statistics. I mean, I don't often agree with Ian Bremer, who's the one of the leading risk um political risk analyst in the West, but he said this fact that China now has a long life expectancy in the United States should be the front page headline of every single newspaper in the United States. I mean, there should be a huge debate taking place in the United States. How come people in the global South, how come live longer than us? How come people in China live longer than us? But of course, this you have to conceal from the population, but it's the US health system is an absolute disgrace in terms of its results. Definitely. And speaking of China, Mr. Ross, I mean, when we look at uh, the, the this U.S.-NATO proxy war in Ukraine and the sort of strategy and uh, maneuverings of U.S. imperialism that, that led up to Russia's invasion, I honestly feel like we're seeing similar things uh, from the U.S. Uh, towards China, but uh, through Taiwan. And uh, I just wonder what you, you sort of make of that as both a China expert and an economist because, I mean, it just seems that Washington is hellbent and, you know, frankly, worsening uh, the social and economic uh, conditions both inside the U.S. and around the world by continuing this uh, bloodthirsty, seemingly never-ending war drive. Well, certainly. I mean, the the, the United States has created chaos in, in the continent in which I live, in Europe. What do we have in Europe? We've got very, very high inflation and we've got a major war going on. This is this is a um, terrible situation. What's caused it? It's the decision of the United States to attempt to expand NATO into Eastern Europe, which was contrary to all the promises that were made when the Soviet Union was dissolved. Um, and they've got they've created chaos in the the, uh, the situation. The, you know, the United States should know from the experience of the Cuban Missile Crisis, a great power is not going to allow missiles and threatens to be within a few miles of its border. That's what the United States in the Cuban Missile Crisis said, we'll prepare to have a world nuclear war to stop this. Russia was not never going to accept the, the situation with NATO, and some people in the United States warned against this. So the United States aggression has now produced a chaotic situation in Europe. It's the worst situation since World War II, and it now seems to want to replicate it in Asia by its policies towards Taiwan. Now, fortunately, the in general, the Asian governments have acted more sensibly than the European ones, and they've told the United States um, to go to hell bluntly. Um, they try and, The United States has been trying to create all sorts of problems in the South China Sea, sailing its warships through there and urging people to take all sorts of actions. And fortunately, the countries of Asia have uh, said, we don't want, any, don't want any part of this. Our economies are doing rather well, thank you. We're doing rather good trade with China. So we want to continue improving the living standards of our population. So as we've all got big crisis created by the United States in one continent, we certainly don't want a big crisis created by the United States in another continent. 
Definitely. And, you know, you, you, you talk about the uh, the economic fallout happening in Europe right now. And um, uh, I think we've seen as a result uh, a number of uh, mass protest and things like this as, you know, Europe stands on the, the precipice of uh, a, a very cold winter. And, of course, in looking at these uh, broader uh, root causes that we've been uh, discussing in terms of global inflation, uh, the economies and um, sort of the, the, the social impacts, it's obvious, uh, speaking of the United States, that, uh, uh, you know, Washington is not going to just sort of, you know, give up its uh, vested interest in big pharma and in uh, the military and things like this. And so it seems that that kind of uh, organized social force is going to be a, a, a really important factor in uh, the people in this country and indeed around the world, improving social conditions as it's clear that those that are our control uh, of this uh, capitalist system aren't going to do so out of the kindness of their hearts. No, certainly. The, I, I feel very sorry for the people of the United States. I mean, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a small thing for the, the average American, far from being told you know, we live in the greatest country in the world, lives six years longer, six years less, sorry, than people in the European countries who live, who live six years longer. This is a horrible situation. Um, extraordinarily, my country, not by accident, one of those in Europe most closely tied to the United States, life expectancy has also started to fall. Well, you know, the number one, the United States goes on about human rights, but the number one human right is to be alive. Without that, you don't have any other human rights. And, and the situation is, um, is getting worse. And yet the people are going to have to um, resist this. And, and, and you're quite right. There is opposition. People don't yet understand, understand why the situation is so bad. In, in my own country, for example, we've got the biggest strike wave now for 15 years. Uh, it's true. People don't yet understand about the war. There's confusion. But it is the United States policy of military aggression which has created this situation. So the, the truth will gradually begin to get through people. If I follow trends on social media, et cetera, it is beginning to be understood by uh, by more people. This is going to be a, a slow process. But, you know, the truth uh, will come out, and that's what we have to get out, the truth about people. But only mass resistance by big social forces is going to stop the U.S. It's never going to stop out of mercy for other people. It's never shown any mercy to people. Well, that's a fact. Well, we thank you so much, Mr. Ross, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the near future of U.S. foreign policy. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by K.J. No, a scholar, educator and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia Pacific. He's also a member of Veterans for Peace and a senior correspondent with Flashpoints on KPFA. K.J., thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. 
Absolutely. And uh, KJ, the United States, uh, according to the White House, is entering a, quote, decisive decade uh, in terms of intensifying its competition with both uh, China and Russia in terms of uh, basically what I think Washington sees as uh, control over the international order and uh, uh, whether things will continue under imperialist uh, uh, unipolarity or some form of multipolarity. And this uh, emanates from uh, a strategy document uh, that was released uh, recently. And the strategy reads in part, quote, we also want to avoid a world in which competition escalates into a world of rigid blocks. We do not seek conflict or a new Cold War. Rather, we are trying to support every country, regardless of size or strength, in exercising the freedom to make choice that serve their interests. Now, uh, KJ, the tone of this on its face is uh, downright reasonable, but even the most uh, cursory analysis of how the U.S. is maneuvering on uh, the world stage, uh, namely in terms of uh, the U.S.-NATO proxy war in Ukraine, uh, uh, the intensifying conflict with China vis-a-vis Taiwan, with, I think, uh, no small number of parallels uh, with the war in Ukraine, uh, uh, it's obvious that there's uh, something else at play here. Here. And so what do you think is really at play and what the real strategy is for the U.S. and in, in this decisive decade? Because to me, it smacks of this uh, concept of a great power competition that we heard emanating from the U.S. government uh, some years back. Yes. I mean, you have to be very careful about the um, the national security strategy. It's, you know, it's actually a revamping of what used to be called the quadra a quadrillennial, uh, you know, defense review. Uh, and essentially, it's a mixture of boilerplate, uh, PR pabulum, uh, and uh, some declaratory positions that they want to telegraph or signal for very specific ends. But we can't read it as kind of an honest uh, document. Uh, instead, we have to do a little bit of work of kind of interpreting it. But what we can see here is that the first thing is that in the previous document, it uh, uh, labeled China and Russia as equally uh, dangerous revisionist power. Russia has actually been downgraded, and it's upgraded China to the key enemy. That is to say, it is the only competitor, quote unquote, enemy with the intent to reshape the national order. China is the main threat, uh, and it... Uh, Describes the threat as a challenge between authoritarian uh, authoritarianism and democracy, and so this is very, very much, you know, kind of classical Cold War thinking. It's classical. Uh, it, it's classical. Uh, this kind of uh, a zero sum analysis, and it does nothing to make the country uh, more secure. Uh, it actually does exactly the opposite. And I think what's interesting is to know the Chinese response, which is to say that, look, you know, we want mutual respect, peaceful coexistence, win-win cooperation. Uh, we're facing changes unseen in a century, and we have to, uh, you know, shift those changes in the direction of peace. And the U.S., despite the pabulum that is put out in this document, is doing almost everything possible to exacerbate and escalate 
towards war. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that is really uh, uh, the core issue that uh, I think gets uh, glossed over. And it's wild that we see that coming from the U.S., which for years has been dedicated to uh, a seemingly endless um, series of wars and conflicts that uh, Washington's involved in, either directly, indirectly, which not only has devastating impacts for the people of those countries, but as we see in the case uh, of the war in Ukraine uh, uh, and, and elsewhere, um, it, it, it also has impacts politically, socially, and otherwise here inside of the U.S. And I feel like we've really been seeing a sharpening of uh, social contradictions and a worsening of of uh, material conditions in this country as a result of the machinations of world imperialism, which certainly uh, predate uh, February 24th, 2022, when Russia uh, uh, invaded Ukraine. And so this uh, sort of fundamental lack of honesty and what feels like a purposeful sort of obscuring of uh, uh, these uh, realities, KJ, seems to me like it really serves a purpose. And I don't think it's an accident then that a lot of uh, the potential of these wars and what it could mean, not just for the people of the U.S., but the world, um, are really kept away from the popular consciousness of the people of the United States. And I think it's just one example of just the seriously dangerous moment that we're in as it pertains to global politics. But because of the narratives and pronouncements of the U.S. government and its corporate-owned press, uh, this is something that's completely lost on many within this country. You're absolutely correct. And, you know, the, I agree with the obscuring and the mystification of the contradictions and the real life conditions. I mean, anybody who, you know, pays attention can notice, you know, the inflation, you know, the massive amounts of people suffering, the depression that's coming on. Uh, we can see homelessness. We know that, you know, a large number of U.S. households don't even have portable, you know, water. And, of course, how can you not notice, you know, the drop in life expectancy three years, something that no developed country has ever seen in the history of record keeping. So all of these things speak to, you know, that we're entering into this end game of capitalism. And yet, at the same time, we have this hallucinatory document, uh, you know, from uh, from the administration, completely out of touch with reality that is focusing on war, which they claim is strategic competition. They talk about investing at home. But, you know, if you enclose the supply chain and try to decouple from China, you're essentially destroying your capacity to develop your own economy. Uh, and this whole notion that somehow through this, you know, misguided and out-of-touch document that they're going to maintain, quote-unquote, U.S. leadership, uh, I think that speaks to the deeply, deeply uh, detached and, you know, almost uh, just kind of out-of-touch reality uh, that the U.S. leadership seems to be barreling down. 
Yeah, and you know this um, this this uh, position paper, if you will, the strategy document. I mean to say, um, uh, KJ uh, goes out of its way, as I noted, to say that the U.S. does not want a new Cold War, and this is not the first time that we're hearing this recently um, from uh, the U.S. government. I mean, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden himself uh, has said that about how the U.S. supposedly does not seek a Cold War uh, with China or in general, and I think that's noteworthy because uh, to me, the only reason why they would even mention it at that level is because they are aware of the uh, parallels between this moment and the Cold War of year past and the fact that people are becoming uh, increasingly aware of it. And so when we talk about that consciousness, you know, in that wing of uh, uh, the ruling class and trying to um, sort of preempt that kind of idea, and I think in doing so trying to uh, preempt a resistance from the American people, in a way, it's almost like they're telling on themselves and almost proving and showing that a new Cold War is precisely what they want. And in reality, beyond that, and perhaps most uh, concerning, is the prospects of a new hot war. Yes, exactly. Um, I think it was Paul Cockburn who said, never believe anything until it's been officially denied. Well, you know, this is the official denial. We are in a Cold War. And as Henry Kissinger himself said, we're in, um, you know, I mean, Henry Kissinger has said that we're in a Cold War. And this is uh, verging on hot war. Uh, And I think that everything that is being said, everything that is being described, and all the actions that are being taken are actually, uh, they're actually exacerbating and driving us closer and closer towards kinetic war. Uh, As the Chinese foreign ministry has said, nobody wants this. They say we want no benefit in the rhetoric that plays up this conflict or major power competition. They go against the trend of the times and the aspiration of the international community. I think they're dead right on that. And if they were listening and actually had some real sense of, you know, cooperation that they claim to have, they would pay heed to these words and work towards de-escalation, towards cooperation, towards win-win, and to stop this continual rhetorical and kinetic escalation that can only end in one in one at one destination, which is a hot war uh, with potential nuclear uh, uh, nuclear uh, escalation. Yeah, in our last couple of minutes, um, KJ, I wanted to raise the fact, as we often note on the show, about how the U.S. continues to try to isolate Russia and China unsuccessfully, and in reality is only isolating itself. And so as things continue to develop, I mean, how do you see how a lot of these different relationships around the world with different governments in an attempt to move away from U.S. hegemony, uh, the role that they play in these dynamics? Well, you know, the thing is, you can isolate or try to isolate Cuba or Nicaragua, but China and Russia are a completely different story. I mean, if you build a fence uh, around uh, your neighbors, uh, then you've essentially uh, fenced yourself in. And that is what the United States is doing now. It's trying to pull other countries into its orbit, but they're not going along well because they see the deleterious effects uh, that are very, very painful. So they're resisting. I mean, for example, Olaf Scholz and the New Trade Commission said 
decoupling from China is not an option. So already we're seeing, even in the vassal Western alliance, there's a lot of resistance to this. It's simply because the fact that, you know, as uh, we know well, to be, you know, an enemy of the U.S. is dangerous and to be uh, an ally of the U.S. is deadly. They are resisting. As for the rest of the global south, they see the advantages that they have in aligning with China and cooperating and mutually developing. Uh, they see the advantages of a multilateral order uh, that is built in win-win cooperation, mutual development. So they're going for that. And the U.S. Uh, response to this is more coups, more color revolutions, more threats, uh, and more uh, you know, damage and escalation. So I think the world is seeing which way uh, the world is turning. And I think uh, this national security strategy, which will you know, inform the national defense strategy, which will inform a procurement and, uh, and military position, uh, I think this is really a Hail Mary pass. Uh, and I think that, once again, I think it's important for the United States to see what is happening in the world, to understand this critical moment in history and to have a different perspective and to go along with you know, the aspirations of humanity, peace, development, coexistence, uh, rather than exploitation, extraction, and hegemonic bullying. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, KJ, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how to make a socialist revolution in the United States of America. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Nino Brown, an organizer with the Boston Jericho Movement and the editor of the book Revolutionary Education, Theory and Practice for Socialist Organizers. Nino, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Absolutely. And Nino, as the compounding contradictions of capitalism and the imperialist system upon which it rests grows sharper and more severe by the day. We maintain here on by any means necessary that in the United States, we will either have a socialist revolution or we will have societal collapse. And when talking about making socialist revolution in uh, uh, the imperialist superpower on the world stage, the U.S., that, that is neither uh, simple nor is it straightforward. And I mean, if we look back uh, to the 1990s, uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a triumphalism, a celebration amongst uh, uh, the U.S. and the other. Other, uh, uh, imperialist countries um, uh, uh, calling it, you know, the end of history and uh, basically saying that the fall of uh, the first
first uh, socialist revolution proved that capitalism was the supreme and only uh, social or political and economic system that could rule in the U.S. and in the world. And so when taking a step back and sort of looking at the uh, necessity for that kind of struggle here in the U.S., uh, obviously we cannot sort of predict either the moment or necessarily the precise conditions under which uh, that would happen here in the U.S., but I feel like we can pull both from history and the objective conditions inside the U.S. today to really start to plot that path towards a socialist revolution. And you recently published a piece about this uh, on uh, liberationschool.org entitled, What Does It Take to Make a Socialist Revolution? And so I want to begin with that broad question. From your perspective, what would it take? What would the conditions need to be in the United States for a, a socialist revolution to actually take place? Yeah, I think, um, <clears throat> thank you for having me here on, you know, first off, huge shout out to Liberation School, Liberation School Collective and the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Um, you know, a lot of my knowledge and understanding of this comes from uh, my tutelage in being a part of that party and, you know, having engaged in collective study, discussion, uh, and organizing, right, uh, to, to get to this, this kind of understanding. <clears throat> and, you know, you mentioned a lot of things, and I wanted to, you know, speak to some of the points you raised before I get to that, that main question. I mean, one, <clears throat> we have been told that uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union that socialism is dead. This is the so-called end of history, you know, in the words of Francis Fukuyama, you know, this liberal uh, uh, political theorist who said that humanity cannot evolve past capitalism. This is the pinnacle. This is as good as it gets. Uh, all we can hope for is maybe green capitalism, capitalism with a human face, and that there is no alternative, right? This is the neoliberal mantra uh, that Margaret Thatcher and uh, Ronald Reagan <clears throat> that they upheld. And, you know, we know that throughout human history, revolutions have occurred. Uh, we know that there have been more rebellions and revolts than there have been revolutions, but revolutions are not an aberration. They're not abnormal. They happen uh, when the contradictions between, you know, what's called the productive forces, right, the, uh, uh, the, the economy, the, the institutions, the wealth-producing institutions, um, you know, when that process uh, comes into contradiction with the, the desires of the people, right, with the material and concrete demands uh, of the people to, you know, raise their living standards or what have you, when those two things come into contradiction, you have a, a crisis-ridden situation, which does not always lead to a revolution. <clears throat> and in order for a revolution to be possible, you need revolutionaries uh, to carry that revolution through, and, you know, not all revolutions are the same. You know, there are political revolutions, social revolutions, and the United States was founded off of a political revolution, right? You had these 13 colonies that decided to break off from the <clears throat> English empire and become an independent country. And, you know, they didn't change the system of capitalism. They just continued it. So it was a political revolution. Now, the situation we have in the United States today requires a social revolution. And what do I mean by a social revolution? We don't need a change of political leadership. 
we don't need a change of, you know, the or actually a change of political leadership is insufficient. Uh, you know, changing of the government uh, is also insufficient. Uh, what we really need is a total social transformation where uh, state power is taken out of the hands of, you know, the 1% or 0.01% ruling class, however you want to frame it, and put into the hands of another class, the working class. And in order for there to be a socialist revolution here, right, in the so-called richest country in the world, uh, most advanced, developed country, et cetera, et cetera, it would need to be explicit socialist consciousness. In the 20th century, socialist movements came to the fore because they were the most ardent fighters for democracy in a colonized context, right? If you look at China, Cuba, uh, Korea, Laos, Vietnam, these are all countries that were not just fighting explicitly for socialism alone, but they had to fight imperialism to get rid of colonialism so that they could be independent, self-determined, and sovereign countries such that they could even build socialism. So in the United States, obviously, we don't, you know, the United States is not a colony, it's not an oppressed nation. Uh, so the path that will take to a socialist revolution will look very different. But I think the, the main conditions that we have to concern ourselves with are the subjective conditions, right? The consciousness of the people. Uh, how organized are we? How well do we know the class enemy? Uh, do we have effective and tested leadership, right? The objective conditions for revolution ha are rights gone rotten, right? The United States throws out 40% of the food that it produces. 44% uh, of people who are homeless have jobs. Right, we produce more homes than uh, homeless people. Right, these are contradictions that could be solved overnight, but we don't have the political or social power to do that. Right, uh, so the objective conditions for a revolution are are there. All that's missing are the subjective conditions, which I believe you know requires explicit socialist consciousness, organization of the people uh, at every level that we can. Yeah. And you mentioned, Nino, uh, the, the consciousness of the people. And I think that that's a crucial point when we talk about making socialist revolution in the United States. It's the issue of raising a mass socialist consciousness. And we're in an interesting moment in the United States where people are more comfortable with the word and, and broad concept of socialism uh, in a particular way. And I think that's noteworthy in a country like the United States that has this deep and abiding history of uh, uh, violent anti-communism. I mean, it's almost an uh, unofficial religion in this country. And, you know, that being the case and grappling with that history and the incessant capitalist propaganda that popular consciousness is subject to in the United States, what do socialist organizers need to be looking to in terms of raising a mass socialist consciousness here in the U.S.? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, um, as, you know, a student of the science of social change, dialectical historical materialism, we know that theory can become a material force when it's gripped by the masses, right? An idea or set of ideas, concepts can take on a material factor in the class struggle, uh, in the struggle for justice and liberation, if it is gripped by the masses of people. Right. Uh, so a case in point being abolition, the idea of abolishing the police was, you know, a marginal idea or defunding them was a marginal idea. Uh, but, you know, it was an idea that came to, to, to fruition um, in the 2020 rebellions, despite the fact that 
people have been writing about abolition since 2003, right? So that theory is beginning to grip the masses of people, gripping up people such that now we have abolitionist organizations and abolitionist books and what have you uh, that I would argue has become a material force in the struggle vis-a-vis police brutality. Uh, in terms of, you know, uh, people becoming more comfortable with socialist rhetoric in the United States and that label, it is true. You know, if you look at uh, Statistica or Pew Research, they show all these statistics about how socialism is becoming less and less of a dirty word, more popular amongst young people, uh, more popular amongst young Democrats and Republicans or people who identify as such, uh, still very popular amongst black people, right? And the violent history of anti-communism in this country uh, presents a challenge for us because it's almost as if we're starting from zero in terms of raising socialist consciousness again, right? People don't know that Langston Hughes, Pablo Picasso, uh, Helen Keller, uh, uh, Einstein, Dr. King, all these people were socialists, right? And although, you know, the rhetoric that they might have espoused, not all of them, wasn't explicitly in, you know, so-called Marxist terms, they were popular terms, uh, you know, they were able to actually have a formidable movement, which was crushed. And, you know, I think just really to the point of like what socialist <clears throat> organizers and, and activists today, I think, uh, should be focused on. I think we should be focused on the concrete struggles where people can go through lessons to learn uh, about socialism, right? What it would mean. So if you're engaged in a housing fight uh, or a struggle over wages or fighting for a union, I mean, people don't expect, experience the capitalist system and its oppression all at once, right? Uh, you know, they, they do. They are oppressed by the system as a total system. But, you know, when they come to consciousness, they don't come to consciousness with everything already mapped out and understood. They come to consciousness based off of the concrete fights that they know and that they're involved in and what's familiar to them. And obviously, you know, the role of theory and study can help to guide that process. But in the main, people come to consciousness through the struggle. So our task as socialists are to find where people are struggling, connect the particular contradictions to the general contradiction of capitalism, right? You're fighting for $15 an hour in a union, right? Using that as a school uh, for socialism, a school to understand how the boss fights. Why does the boss fight? Why every boss fights, even if they're nice, even if your boss is your dad or your boss is a family member. They have fundamental economic interests that put you diametrically opposed to them, right? Uh, but people are not going to learn those lessons just from rhetoric alone. We actually have to engage in the struggle, struggle against the capitalist system and the class enemy, but also the more important struggle is the struggle for summation, the struggle to correctly summarize the lessons of the struggle after it's done, because after every struggle, there are lessons to be learned, positive and negative. And if we don't struggle to win the correct, uh, you don't know, struggle to win the correct orientation, right? Then it's almost as if we struggled for for nil or for nothing, right? Yeah, and you know that leads me to a question then, Nino, about the vehicle uh, through which socialist revolution is made uh, uh, in the United States. And I think about this a lot because I know that uh, both of us spent a lot of time in uh, uh, popular movements. And one thing that uh, is noteworthy is this aversion to uh, the ideas of Marxism, even if there are sort of broad anti-capitalist trends, which I think there are uh, within the popular movement, but an aversion to Marxist ideas 
ideology and aversion to uh, the party structure as a concept, uh, as, you know, th- these kinds of more loosely structured uh, uh, types of formations um, are, are, are popular now with, you know, an assumed leadership in, instead of, of an acknowledged and accountable leadership, among other things. And so, you know, from where you sit, I mean, what is the kind of uh, uh, organization that has to be in place if uh, a revolution is going to become a material reality here in this country? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, you know, we can look to history to help us to begin to answer it. You know, if we look at the Russian Revolution, uh, 1917, the October Revolution, uh, or November, depending on who you ask, uh, you know, <clears throat> there were many other socialist groups, socialist parties that existed. Uh, the conditions of World War One had led to uh, revolutionary possibilities all over the world, uh, in Germany, Austria, uh, Hungary, rather, and only the Russian, only the Russians were able to make a revolution because they had a revolutionary party that was not just a group of like-minded individuals or a group of friends or a group of, you know, anti-capitalists vaguely. These were revolutionaries who were tested in various struggles. Uh, they were organizers of various, you know, working class struggles. They uh, had a firm foundation, you know, running into the granite foundation in Marxist theory. And, you know, uh, the aversion to, you know, so anyway, they, they were able to make a revolution because they had such a tested party, which was a key factor in guiding people through the morass of World War One, through the chaos and contradictions, uh, using that experience and uh, concentrating it and providing concrete leadership, right? The ruling class, uh, they have their mass organizations, right? They have their institutions uh, to develop their cadres and what have you. But they also have political parties, right, that represent their interests, that organize on their interests, that build and develop cadres to spread their ideology in our community, all over the world, all in their interests. So if they have a party, how do we think we are going to suffice without a party? Uh, and as history has shown, you know, uh, revolutionary parties can make the difference because, uh, as I said, Russia had a revolution, Germany, all the conditions were ripe for revolution. The Bolsheviks used to look up to Germany as the revolutionary party to, to admire and, and to fashion oneself after. But the German Social Democratic Party was unable to, to they, they, weren't, they weren't a Bolshevik-type party. They weren't a, a, a steeled revolutionary party that was willing to, to take power, right? Um, in Hungary, a similar situation. Uh, even as early as 2011, with the Occupy, with the Egyptian Revolution and the Arab Spring, we saw that there were massive revolutions that got rid of governments, but because it was so-called leaderless, uh, there was no actual organization that represented the interests of the working class or any sizable, you know, group of people, peasants, you know, and mainly in the so-called third world. But there was no party that could actually organize the people and distill the grievances into political demands and lead people through struggle, right? Uh, so instead, the Muslim Brotherhood took power, right? Because not because they were more revolutionary, not because they were better in any way, but because they were more organized, right? Uh, we know that the only power that working class people have is through organization, 
We see this in the workplace. We organize ourselves to produce vast amount of wealth and services for the capitalists. And that power of organization can be used to produce revolutions, right? Where the vast wealth and services uh, are publicly owned and democratically operated. You know, and so the point that you raise about the aversion to ideas of Marx and Marxism, I mean, you know, Marx remarks to uh, Engels, uh, I think it was in the uh, late 1860s, you know, you know, kind of essentially ridiculing these French French socialists who all of a sudden, you know, wanted to adhere to everything Marx said and were big fans of Marx. But he said that they really failed to understand, you know, his method, the historical and dialectical materialist method, uh, which I think is a bit more, which is more important than, you know, uh, Marx's demand, right? It's his method that lives on. Uh, he's, that he's dead, but people have taken up this, this tool, these tools of thinking and organizing and changing the world and use them and apply them and have thus sharpened them. Uh, and, you know, so Marx in this letter to Engels says, you know, save me from the Marxist. You know, if these people are Marxist, then I'm not a Marxist. Right. Uh, so I think that, you know, what's, uh, more important is the content. You know, people call themselves Marxists or not. Obviously we live in an anti-communist country. Uh, even, you know, the Russians, they had to use Aesopian language you know, uh, uh, essentially kind of, you know, metaphoric language and what have you to explain the same class reality, but just through different terms. So, you know, I think with that aversion, you know, we can put forth uh, scientific socialism, the science of social change, historical and dialectical materialism, revolutionary science and, and thought, right? These are all things that I think are stand-ins to me. I understand them as Marxism. But if people are so worked up about the name Marx and what have you, I think we should focus on the actual content, his method. Uh, and the last point, you know, about the aversion to party structures, I mean, that's, I think, tied up with the collapse or the overthrow of the Soviet Union, because it wasn't just the idea of socialism that was diminished. It was the idea of how do you get there? What actually led up to this? And part and parcel of that was the idea of a revolutionary party, uh, Leninist party. And, you know, incidentally, in the night, 1980s, 19, early 1990s, we see this rebirth of anarchism uh, kind of culminating in the 1999 battle uh, in Seattle, where anarchism kind of takes a full reintegration into, you know, general American life and politics, right? Uh, or at least the, the left politics, rather. Uh, and, you know, not to knock the battle of Seattle, but like, Obviously, these elites, capitalist elites, continue to gather and meet all over the world, and they still haven't really been defeated. And, you know, the, the structures that, or the lack of structure has, you know, enabled just, I mean, the lessons to really be lost in the struggle, right? A party is different than other formations in that these are the people who not only attend the protest, they think about the protest in a deeper way. How do we make the protest deeper, wider, more effective, broader, uh, stronger, right? Uh, who's doing security? The small things. Who's doing security? What's our speakers list? Do we have, uh, uh, you know, water and food for people? Uh, do we have a follow-up event? You know, are we doing political education? Even things that not everyday people just, you know, kind of find themselves doing. But those who are in a party structure, uh, there's, you know, uh, organization, norms of discipline, uh, uh, you know, study, uh, summation, all these things, you know, that's what's really missing. And it's a, it's a hard thing to do. You know, it's not, it's not easy per se. Uh, and anarchism, 
where there's no guys, no masters, no victories, no losses, no defeats, no bedtimes. You know, it's just like a rejection of so many things. It 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 cannot defeat an organized force, right? You cannot have an unorganized force defeat a very hyper organized force, right? Uh, so we have to be just as organized as the capitalists, if not more. Um, and not succumb to what they said in the 1980s was the, the tyranny of structurelessness, right? By assuming that, you know, we're, we're anarchists, we're, we're free from all structures because we say it, we're free from all structures and hierarchies because we say it does not actually destroy hierarchies. Because then if you're in a room full of, if you're in a room full of, you know, working class people or you're organizing and you say, we're all the same here, but some people have college education, some people don't, some people have debt, some people don't have debt. Obviously, we're not all the same, right? Some people have different capacities, and we should recognize that not as a hindrance or as a handicap, but as something to work through and not just assume that we're all equalitarian and horizontal when we just say so, when it doesn't actually, it actually allies the material fact that we aren't. Absolutely. We cannot meet organization with disorganization. And before we conclude today, I want to make our listeners aware of an ambitious new book that expounds upon what me and Nino have been discussing today. It's entitled Socialist Reconstruction, A Better Future for the United States. Uh, You can find it at liberationstore.org. And this book dares to ask the question, what would the United States look like if poor work and oppressed people controlled society. And you can anticipate that we'll be getting deeper into this book in the near future. Well, we want to thank you so much, Nino, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there, but move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, October 13th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And at that time, you will be able to give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can download the show at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also check us out at sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. You can follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash BAM necessary. And just like every day, we are streaming live from rumble.com slash C as in cat slash BAM necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Esther Rivera. 
artist, author, independent journalist, and host and producer of On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital, which you can listen to both as a podcast and on Pacifica Radio. Esther, thanks so much for joining us. Always happy to join you. And we're always happy to have you, Esther. And uh, Nuri Martinez, uh, the former president of the Los Angeles City Council, has uh, formally resigned from the council uh, following the backlash of uh, the recent release of some pretty gross comments uh, that were uh, recorded uh, between her and several other uh, uh, city officials. And these comments were racist. They were homophobic. They were anti-immigrant. They were bigoted. And, you know, I was reading her statement uh, when she was resigning. And it's pretty ridiculous because she talks about how she has a broken heart and she touts all the accomplishments uh, made under her tenure and uh of course, as always, talks about how she was the uh, first uh, Latina uh, president of the council. But nowhere in that statement was there an apology uh, for the things that she said, which included, I'll remind people, uh, her openly fantasizing about doing violence to a child. So before we get started and before we um, get your thoughts on this, Esther, I actually wanted to play two clips of uh, Martinez's comments just to sort of refresh our memory of what was actually said. All the, you know, folks like with that's going, he did call me, he wants to have breakfast with me. Um, what is taking him so long? I haven't, I just said, hey, we need to talk. He still supported him from the... I don't worry, I got you. Um, uh, yeah. So yeah, you'll start you. seeing him line up. He looked black. Isaac was the first one. He's with the blacks speaking of another city official. Uh, and when she talked about uh, uh, taking him and uh, basically giving, saying he needs a beatdown, she's speaking of the eight-year-old son uh, of one of the white uh, gay council members there in L.A. And so, you know, uh, uh, there was mass outcry uh, uh, as a result of this quite naturally, uh, Esther. So I'm curious, uh, just sort of your top-line thoughts about uh, how this all played out. Well, you know, I've been really wrestling with these types of stories that come out periodically that reveal the pub the private statements of people publicly when they are speaking in a real racist, homophobic, sexist, misogynist way, whatever. You know, there was the case recently of the owner of the Phoenix Suns, I believe, one of the one of the NBA teams. Uh and so I kind of put this in that same category in the sense of how the the story comes out and you know my i been, i had this conversation with John Jeter on 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 the ground on my show when the phoenix uh, incident happened and we started talking about words versus power about i i've been thinking about how for a lot of people in the in who are black or latino uh they are in these positions like, you know, they buy or either are actually in the 1% or, you know, trying to be, want to be in the 1%. And these types of things where people are calling you names 
uh, I guess that's the most egregious way that they can feel harmed in a way, if you don't understand what I mean. So that these issues become uh, the way, the, the main way that they can uh, feel that they really are a part of this uh, world of the elite. And if you bring out the fact that they are black, that they have a black child or or that, you know, you they hear names, they hear themselves called names. It hurts them in a way to kind of remind them the way they really are placed in the society. But, you know, in terms of this particular woman, you know, the idea that you would when she says, you know, this is a black child, he's he's raising him like he's white. That implies that black children don't deserve to be raised in a sense of a place that's assumed to have more safety, right? It's assumed to have um, a better standard of life. So this black child, you know, he's raising him like he's white. I mean, what does that mean, you know? So it really is very, uh, in addition to threatening the violence, it's making all kinds of really odious assumptions about the how black children uh, are raised and whether our children deserve to be in a place of safety, you know, in a place of more privilege, I guess, if safety is a, is, is, is a privilege in this society that we live in, really, really ugly. And uh, getting back to the whole issue of power, uh, my, old, my other uh, thought about her in particular is the idea that as city council president, she was in a position of power. And these words, while they are the most, you know, headline-grabbing thing, it kind of covers up what they were trying to do in that meeting around, you know, rigging the um, um, uh, changing of the election lines in the city to further disempower Black people in Los Angeles. I went to school undergrad in Los Angeles, and I, you know, every time I go back there, there are fewer and fewer Black people in Los Angeles. There are fewer and fewer Black communities, uh, the communities that I knew that were Black, they are no longer Black. The people have moved out. And to the extent that, you know, it was almost kind of like, wow, do I have a community to kind of visit and, you know, get that experience again? And so so hopefully this conversation about the article and these headlines will get back to the issue of what they were trying to do in terms of power disempowering the black community, further disempowering black people in Los Angeles, and all the things that she's done as city council president to squash the um, progressive uh, proposed legislation, things to address homelessness. Uh, I think they were trying to get a public bank, you know, just all kinds of things that the progressives that managed to get a toehold on the city council were trying to do that she squashed, uh, playing these very... uh, uh, reactionary games, and now she's just been caught uh, behind behind the camera, we should say, as it is, uh, saying what she really feels. Yeah, and the point you make about power in all of this, um, Esther, is crucially important because this is not just another racist conversation. I mean, lots of conversations happen like this all over the United States. This is a racist country, so we know that to be a fact. But this particular racist conversation was being held within the context of them discussing housing and uh, districting and these things that have a real material impact on black people in Los Angeles and uh, the other poor and working communities of that 
city. And uh, as you note, I mean, uh, L.A., without question, a city that uh, has seen and continues to see uh, serious uh, issues of gentrification and displacement and and rising costs of living. I mean, just a supremely uh, expensive uh, place to live. And so uh, the power question then is uh, central because it's one thing to be a racist. It's another thing uh, uh, to be a racist with the ability to impact people's lives and their material conditions. I I remember, you know, there's this quote that Kwame Torre used to say that that I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with uh, when he said that if a white man wants to lynch me, that's his problem. And he said, if a white man has the power to lynch me, it's my problem. So this makes all the difference, I think, in a material sense when we uh, uh, talk about, excuse me, the influence that uh, that uh, people like this have and how uh, uh, in reality, a lot uh, uh, of what, you know, impacts the material conditions of black people, of poor working and oppressed people, not just in L.A., not just in California, but indeed across this country is uh, uh, not only something that we should acknowledge and be aware of, uh, Esther, but I think something we need to be active in organizing around. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, you know, when you were speaking, it made me think of other uh, comments or sayings that, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've been in conversations or forums or different types of discussions where people are talking about, you know, whether black people can be racist, right? And one of the responses that during that, during those types of, I don't know, interventions that I've been a part of, one of the responses has always been, well, black people can't be racist because racism involves power, right? It involves the ability to act out on your what might be prejudices. So racism is is a more powerful element than just, I don't like you, you don't like me, I don't like your skin, you don't like my skin, which is, I guess, considered a prejudice. So I don't, you know, that that's one thing I'm thinking about in terms of those discussions I've been in. And it's been a while, it's been a few years back when people were maybe first starting to kind of explore those ideas. And then the other thing about, uh, you know, more recently, as people have really uh, discussed more about, as the phrase white supremacy, white supremacist has come into more of the language and more people have been kind of talking about what it is. And one of the things that I know that I know that we've discussed or I've heard discussed here is that, you know, you don't have to be a white to to, uh, project white supremacist ideas to uh, put those things uh, into action in your work, in the way you raise your children, in the way the attitudes that you project on a day-to-day basis so that uh, this woman can project white supremacist ideas and and white and do the the work that is making those attitudes uh, spread uh, throughout the community and a community that she is supposedly serving as an elected servant. So those are two things I was thinking about. Definitely. And I appreciate you raising this. And I'm going to uh, uh, repeat a quote from Karl Marx that I say all the time here on the show because it is often so relevant. And that is that the dominant ideas of any society are those of its ruling class. The ruling class, the capitalist, this wealthy minority, they need white supremacy. They need anti-LGBTQ bigotry. 
they uh, 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 they need all these different forms of bigotry and discrimination uh, uh, to keep up this game of divide and conquer amongst uh, poor, working and oppressed people so that our anger is directed at each other and not at the system that uh, is exploiting us all. And so what that means is that these backward reactionary bigoted attitudes can be found at every sector of U.S. society. But to your point, uh, uh, Esther, not every sector of this society has the power to manifest uh, uh, those uh, uh, tendencies in a material way outside of the interpersonal. And this leads me to another point that, that I really want to get to. Because I think predictably what grew um, out of this whole situation was this uh, issue of anti-black racism amongst uh, Latin Americans in the United States. And what I'm noticing is people on social media posting random uh, uh, videos of uh, Latin people uh, spewing uh, this uh, anti-black racism. And yes, obviously that's uh, uh, gross, but uh, the people that, that do these sorts of things who hold that kind of politic, uh, they seem to think that they're really doing something, that they're making some kind of profound point, And they're not because these folks, they, they rage against what they call a quote unquote black brown alliance. But the concept of it that they put forth has absolutely no substance. It's a political, it's a historical, it's nebulous, right? And so it, it doesn't really mean anything. All you're showing is that there's a racism against black people in this country. And I don't think that was ever in doubt. And so the question for us then is, well, what has to be done to uh, uh, overcome these material issues? What we need is an organized, militant movement against the white supremacy and capitalism that uh, uh, exploits and oppresses black folks, that oppress and exploits uh, Latin people, and indeed all poor working and oppressed people in this country. And it has to be rooted, not in some uh, kumbaya, feel-good uh, uh, notion uh, that people think of when they think of solidarity. Solidarity is revolutionary unity. And what that means is while struggling against the enemy, we're also struggling with each other over these contradictions because there absolutely are contradictions that are brought to bear between oppressed people. And as I noted, it is stoked purposefully by the ruling class as a kind of deflection play to ensure that we don't. Uh, uh, actually uh, uh, go against or fight our real common enemy. And so also I can't help but feel like a lot of the folks who engage in that sort of thinking outside of, uh, you know, uh, online social media posts, people who engage in that kind of thinking, uh, in my humble opinion, to a large extent, have absolutely no intention of uh, making any contribution to any movement that is really going to solve our issues. That's laziness. You're not doing anything by being angry on the Internet. If you want liberation, if you are serious about liberation, then we have to struggle. And so I just kind of feel like that's how we should be uh, thinking about these uh, very real contradictions that are uh, uh, brought up, uh, Esther. But, you know, feeding into these uh, uh, narratives given to us by the ruling class, I think will only uh, hasten our own defeat. You know what I mean? Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think that what you're talking about, it reminds me that 
um, this is precisely why people were so uh, frightened by the uprising against racism in 2020, because that movement, you know, uh, coming after the murder of Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, it educated people about the the systemic nature of racism and and the power of racism racism in the society and the fact that how it was race based i mean how, you know how it was uh, throughout the society but the particular way that it impacted the black community and it spread out to really talk about these larger issues of of beyond you know in addition to anti black racism you know, colonialism, the history of slavery, the history of the 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 ways that uh, neocolonialism had impacted or continued to impact Africa, Latin America, Asia, and and I think it was really important because some of our Latinx brothers and sisters, if they didn't know already, they they began to understand that they are in the same boat as we are. And uh, the movement allowed us to know who our comrades are, whether they're black, um, you know, brown, you know, what they call yellow, red, white, whatever. And it allowed us to uh, understand that uh, our commonality is our class. Our commonality is whether we are going to struggle against this larger society, this not larger system uh, that is... Uh, a danger to us, whether it's attacking us literally with the police or through low wages or through poor health care or, you know, um, a sickened environment, polluted environment from these corporations. And so I think that that's why uh, that movement was so under attack, because it was a it was a big blow to reveal that we have more in common with each other and we don't, we can get past these little flare ups every now and then where people when when racists are revealed for who they are and we can just stick with the people who aren't racist and who want to be our comrades and who who want to help us fight as opposed to these like you know uh jive trashy politicians who really want to just be a tool of oppression and not really fight the system Definitely. I mean, not to mention that, you know, when we talk about uh, Latin folks in this country, no small number of them are black themselves. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Esther Averam. 
And Esther, as the U.S. NATO proxy war in Ukraine uh, continues to escalate, it's being reported that uh, the nuclear power plant in Zaporozhye, located in southeastern Ukraine, uh, has been forced to switch to emergency diesel generators uh, after being shelled overnight, uh, which disconnected it from its electric grid. And there's some dangerous implications with this. Uh, Rafael Mariano Grassi, who was the International Atomic Energy Agency Director General, uh, told Common Dreams, quote, uh, the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant must be protected, warning that something very catastrophic could take place if that shelling persists. And so it really seems as things continue to escalate here, uh, uh, Esther, particularly following um, the uh, referendum in those four Ukraine uh, territories where they basically voted to uh, join uh, the Russian Federation and the Russian government, considering those regions legally a part of Russia and uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky sort of legally declaring that there is no negotiating with the Putin government. Then there was a terrorist attack on the Crimea Bridge, which itself triggered a series uh, of Russian attacks on Ukraine. I mean, it just feels like we're uh, uh, sort of ramping up and heading up the escalation ladder uh, ever more swiftly. And so just sort of wondering how you're estimating things uh, with this conflict at this point. Well, I I wanted to kind of first deal with the the nuclear plant because it is really uh, a very, very dangerous, very, very dangerous situation. The and it's a, I don't even want to call it a game, but uh, the Ukrainian regime seems to make it into a game of shelling this nuclear plant. And you know, maybe maybe some people hearing me say this on your show will say, oh. Why is she saying the Ukrainians are shelling it? Because corporate media in this country, and I assume in Europe too, I, I don't hear that much uh, European uh, media, uh, they've been saying that Russia is shelling the plant. And, of course, anyone looking at the situation knows that Russia is occupying the plant, that they uh, have taken over this part of Zaporizhia. That's why they had the referendum in that area. So they're not shelling themselves just like they didn't uh, blow up their own uh, Nord Stream 1 and 2 uh, gas pipes, uh, majority owned by Gazprom. They didn't blow up their own bridge. They, you know, they didn't uh, uh, shell the Donbass for, for eight years, killing, you know, 14,000 people. And so I think it's first to to put that out there and to recognize that because that is a big part of the Western propaganda that's been put out. And secondly, I would say that there's a lot of talk in our our news media about uh, Putin allegedly threatening uh, nuclear, to use nuclear weapons. Well, this shelling of the nuclear plant is really, it's the real nuclear blackmail. And that's what uh, Russia cons- considers it to be, and really it's what the whole world should consider it to be because it's posing uh, the real nuclear danger. Uh, and uh, it reminds me that when uh, these newspapers keep putting out this trope at this point, uh, saying that Putin is threatening to, threatening to use nuclear weapons, that he was basically in his speech, his last major speech, responding to threats made by 
Secretary Antony Blinken, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, also statements by UK Prime Minister Liz Truss, when they actually were the ones who said point blank that they would use uh, nuclear weapons against Russian troops or, or, you know, whatever it took, you know, in this conflict. And so given given this terrible situation at the nuclear plant, given the um, reckless statements by Anthony Blinken, Liz Truss, most recently uh, Volodymyr Zelensky himself calling for a uh, premature or, or a, you know, a premature uh, nuclear strike on Russia to a preventive nuclear strike on Russia uh, to prevent them from using nuclear weapons. And then Joe Biden making his infamous Armageddon comments uh, either that same day or the next day recently. You know, there's just a lot of loose talk about nuclear weapons and the danger of nuclear um, energy, you know, here at this moment. But you see, you see, with these attacks on this nuclear plant, that's the real danger. That's the real, what is happening in real time. It's not rhetoric. And the fact that Ukraine has about 40,000 troops in that area and they're continuing to to uh, want to either attack that area and or attack the plant is the real danger that we have to look at. Definitely. And I appreciate you raising uh, the fact of Russia occupying the, the Zaporozhye nuclear plant, Esther, because you're right. It makes no sense for Russia to shell the plant if they're the ones occupying it, just as you say, it makes no sense for Russia to blow up their own $11 billion pipeline when they could simply just turn it off if they wanted to stop the flow of gas. And what all of this reminds me of, Esther, is something that we've been saying consistently on the show ever since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that is the fact that the United States is more than willing to fight Russia down to the last Ukrainian. And as we clearly see, Volodymyr Zelensky is more than willing to allow his own people to be used in that way. And so I just think that that that's a big part of the reality that is just completely absent from uh, the popular consciousness here in the United States, because it is uh, completely separate and different from what we're hearing ad infinitum, both from uh, the heights of government power and uh, the corporate owned press. You know what I mean? And so the reality of things, it, it flies in the face of this uh, human rights veneer or, or charade, really, that the U.S. is uh, perpetrating here or claiming that uh, they care uh, uh, about human rights. If that were true, then they wouldn't have helped scuttle the negotiation between uh, Ukraine and Russia that were happening early on. You know, so I just feel like the real hand and the real interest and desires of U.S. imperialism are being exposed here uh, uh, more and more as and uh, as such, uh, the more it's exposed, I think the the closer this this danger really becomes. And uh, as movement people, particularly here in the United States, I think that it asks some serious questions about how we're going to organize to respond to all this for the sake of humanity. Yeah, so you're absolutely right in terms of this, the coverage and the the way that facts are spun into just nonsense. I've been thinking about the way that the 
war really isn't covered. I mean, uh, we we don't really see. I, I just I just happened to see a snippet of uh, a film being made about the the battle for Mariupol. And I don't have the filmmaker's name. I, it, was, it was something I, I, I had a chance to see on Rumble uh, because, you know, normally most of the corporate platforms here, you can't even, you don't even see anything. But it was extremely riveting. And when you really think about what went on there for so long, you know, you, it makes you think, why don't we have images of this war, the tremendous uh, battles, the, the it just extreme violence that has has gone on and and then i remember that well you know this war has been going on for eight years and most of the people in the united states don't even know that so when you really see pictures of the donbass uh so many neighborhoods and communities totally bombed and sometimes they show those things but they, they try to make it seem like russia did that but no these are buildings and squares and public areas bombed by Kiev during the last eight years where it, it looks like, you know, Berlin after World War II or, or even worse, right? Because it's not even that grand of a, of a city. These were, you know, small industrial towns that where people live or, or rural communities where people live very close to the land where you have houses and schools and uh you know, other types of public facilities bombed and unusable, you know, where, like I said before, 14,000 people have died. And I think I said it to Jackie one time talking on the show, I said, this really means a lot to me because, you know, what it means is that the deaths of these people, their lives have been disappeared by corporate media as if they don't matter, as if their lives don't matter. And instead they want to uh, c- catalog every missile that strikes Kiev, even if it's c- hitting uh, infrastructure now as a war crime. But the lives of these people have been disappeared. Is that that's not a war crime to attack your own people and to attack civilian infrastructure in a documented way that's already killed tens of thousands of of of, of you know thousands of people. So the um, so yeah, that's that's what I, what I thought of. I mean, I forgot the rest, the rest of your question, but you know. <laughs> no, not a problem. Not a problem. I mean, you definitely spoke to it and it's always relevant to raise the 14,000 some odd uh, people who have died uh, in the Donbass over the last eight years since the U.S. backed Maidan coup of 2014. And as I often point out, as you just did, uh, Esther, not a single crocodile tear uh, was shed for those uh, Ukrainian people, supposedly the same Ukrainians that uh, uh, Washington cared about so much in this moment. But switching gears a, a little bit here, uh, uh, Esther, to talk some about uh, uh, domestic politics here in the U.S., uh, the January 6th panel uh, continue here. It's my understanding that today uh, there was at least a plan for the committee to vote on whether to subpoena uh, a former President Donald Trump uh, for his involvement in ordering the January 6th, uh, 2021 attack on the Capitol as he sought to overturn the uh, election results. And I believe the uh, 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 panel itself has been streaming uh, since this afternoon. I don't know if you've uh, had a chance to see any of it or if you just uh, generally have some thoughts about how this has been unfolding, but uh, definitely wondering how you're seeing it. Oh, yeah. So up until the time I connected with you, I was watching the hearing 
And they news reports are saying that they do plan on taking a vote whether to subpoena Trump. And because when Benny Thompson, the chair, Representative Benny Thompson, started the hearing, he said that it would also be a working meeting, meaning that they would take some type of vote or decision. And so no one knew what that meant. But then reports started leaking out that that vote would be whether to subpoena Trump. So but the biggest takeaway I found from today is more scrutiny about the Secret Service. So I think you remember if you watch some of the past hearings, they were just getting to the point where they were uh, talking about what was happening at the White House and how Trump actually planned to, wanted to go down to the Capitol and was really angry inside his limo, they call the Beast, because the they would not take him there. The Secret Service would not take him to the Capitol on January 6th. And there's been some reporting back and forth about about, you know, the details of that. One one of those testimonies was that, you know, Trump had actually had his hands around the neck of somebody inside the limo or whatever. And but anyway, so today it was actually I think pretty shocking to hear about all the reports the Secret Service had at least beginning uh the day before, in terms of the the actual event, um, seeing armed people out on the streets, um, you know, people with uh, automatic weapons, uh, how the crowd outside the rally on the ellipse where Trump was speaking when he directed people to the Capitol, how the crowd outside the metal detectors started growing more and more and more. And the Secret Service realized that, okay, they don't want to go through the secret, through the metal detectors because they're armed. And uh, so some of these texts have been revealed now, and they are, they were revealed in today's hearing. And so there was a shot of the Capitol Police officers looking up at the screen at these texts, and their their, their faces were like amazed because they realized that, you know, what was happening in the moments before the same mob came up to the Capitol where they were attacked, where these police officers were attacked. And to know that at that well before that, the Secret Service knew that this mob coming toward the Capitol was mob, was was armed. And so, anyway, that that was one of the the things. And then I uh, I happened to hear a little commentary uh, on one of the cable channels where uh, Andrew Weiss, uh, I think it's Andrew Weissman, former FBI, I think special counsel, was was talking about how uh, the the testimony really put the the Secret Service under scrutiny because. Uh, they were t- they're talking about an intelligence uh, failure, and then I don't know if you ever hear uh, uh, Frank Figluzzi. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name properly, but he's often a commentator on on uh, cable, and he says, "Well, I don't know if this is dropping the ball or an intentional grounding, <laughs> because there's just more scrutiny now on the fact that there was a lot of sympathy." apparently in the FBI uh, for this, these um, insurrectionists on January 6th? Why wasn't there uh, the type of uh, 
preparation and uh, reaction to shut down some of these things, like this big rally on the ellipse to keep these people from getting to the Capitol if they knew they were armed. This was being planned well in advance. There were these text uh, posts on something called Donald dot win or Donald Trump win or something like that. And it's, it was a website set up just to plan for January 6th. And there was a, a Trump aide, I think Jason Miller, who posted something on that website and all these comments, you know, advocating for violence and for people to be killed were posted underneath his, his thread. And then he testified to the committee that, oh, I never saw those posts. I don't know anything about them. So I, I don't know what's going to happen after this today's hearing, because there were reports that it was the last one. But given the fact that they're talking about subpoenaing subpoenaing Trump, and they're also talking about this new information and how, you know, so there's so much more to find out about the so-called intelligence agencies and what they did and did not do. I don't, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't sound like it's going to be the last hearing. Yeah. And right as you were uh, uh, speaking, Esther, it was reported that the January 6th committee has voted unanimously to subpoena Trump. And I want to read just uh, a little bit of the reporting on this from The Hill. It says in part, quote, the subpoena is not likely to yield fruit, however, as Trump has remained defiant throughout the 16 month investigation. The former president is expected to challenge the subpoena in the courts, a process that is certain to extend beyond the life of the special committee, which is set to end later this year. As recently as a few weeks ago, some members of the committee had acknowledged that a subpoena for either Trump or his former vice president, Mike Pence, was likely futile. So, <laughs> I mean, who knows? Uh, I, I tend to agree, uh, uh, Esther, that this seems likely to continue to unfold. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Esther Averum is here as we continue. And Esther, I wanted to uh, uh, end off today talking about some uh, upcoming uh, resistance uh, uh, to uh, uh, a meeting that's going to be happening soon with the IMF and the World Bank. And uh, I'm going to read a little bit here just from this piece from the anti-war group Code Pink uh, Women for Peace, where it says, Quote, inside the meetings, the boards of governors of these institutions will continue their nearly 80 year tradition of a small group of people from the most privileged countries in the world making decisions that affect every single person in every single place on this planet. Most devastatingly, the global south. And it's true. Uh, the World Bank, uh, the IMF, these are institutions that are, are at the vanguard of this uh, devastating neoliberal uh, uh, system that has just ravaged 
damaged so much of this earth, uh, certainly as that piece points out, as we see uh, uh, in the global south. And it's this kind of uh, elite insular meeting that happen all the time uh, here in D.C. And uh, just wondering, uh, Esther, what you see as the relevance for understanding of what's happened in these meetings and why it's important to resist them. Yeah, you know, these meetings are happening, you know, as we speak, actually, uh, the the actions to kind of confront the IMF and the World Bank, uh, the action started on Wednesday. They're happening today and then also tomorrow. And, you know, in a way, it's kind of uh, the perfect focal point because all these things that we're talking about, you know, war and peace and the environment and you know, and, you know, the abuse of nuclear energy and I don't know, just really our survival as a species on this planet is really wrapped up in this, these institutions, these uh, that, you know, have a grip on the lives of so many people around the planet. So we know that the World Bank and the IMF, they, they do a lot to basically extend the capitalist system, the the flow of dollars, you know, who gets loans, uh, high interest loans, um, forcing countries to cut back on vital human services and uh, really the human rights of people, too. If you think about the the environment and clean water and access to, um, you know, you know, an unpolluted earth as a human right, you know, so. I know that Code Pink is one of the groups involved in the actions here in D.C. The, like I said, they started yesterday, and then they'll go on until tomorrow. And I know uh, a a a big focus was the uh, the IMF. You know, through their policies, kind of in, in continued continuing to encourage the the ravaging of the natural resources of the planet. You know, to uh, encourage, you know, mining, deforestation, uh, the type of of just drive for corporate profits at the expense of, you know, human needs. So, you know, we need to be out there. I have to try to get out there. <laughs> get out there in the street, you know. Yeah, totally. And, you know, when you when you talk about how uh, what's at stake in terms of our existence as a species, Esther, that is so, so important because we've been commenting on the show about just the complete lack of urgency from uh, the people of the United States around a lot of these issues, which I attribute to the narratives that come from our government and the uh, 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 mainstream press that don't uh, generate any kind of uh, urgency. Because if there was urgency, then it more than likely would manifest in the form of a resistance movement to what U.S. imperialism is doing all over the globe and how it is impacting us in a material way right here inside the United States. And so it's a situation where the people of America are basically being sold their own destruction as somehow being beneficial to them. I mean, this is the lunacy of the imperialist state and the fact that it has to lie in this way to manufacture people's consent. And so if we were to speak this way to, you know, someone who uh, imbibes a steady diet of a uh, mainstream media like so many, you know, people do, 
um, uh, in terms of how deeply uh, we're propagandized, they may think we're out of our minds. But when you look at uh, uh, the issues of the climate and of war and the direct role, that capitalism and the imperialist system that springs from it plays in that uh, when that is, I think, uh, uh, sort of elucidated and made clear. Well, then uh, uh, the mask, I think, comes off of this uh, uh, this deflection play that imperialism likes to uh, engage with uh, so much. And so, you know, the kind of organizing that different groups are doing around the IMF and World Bank meetings are important as a part and parcel of uh, this effort to uh, uh, really speak up about what's happening on so many levels and the role that these international um, economic institutions play in it because I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, they may be, you know, they may have some familiarity. People in the United States may have some familiarity with the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, but I think they're fundamentally seen as neutral institutions. But no, they are thoroughly political. I would argue that they have a a, a class character in their service to imperialism. And uh, uh, like I say, I just think generally there's a lack of understanding about how these things impact us here in the U.S. where we're being told everything is uh, fine and dandy. Absolutely. So I, before I forget, I want to tell people that the website, they can get a little more information is fourpeople4planet.earth. Fourpeople4planet.earth. And, and that has a little information about, you know, the ongoing action and what's going to happen tomorrow. And, you know, when we really think about what is happening in Ukraine, Sean. Um, I, you know, I, I'm kind of working on tomorrow's show, and I thought about, uh, I think it's Lenin's quote where he says, "There are decades when nothing happens, and there are weeks when decades happen." And we're definitely in a moment like that right now. And one of the things that's happening in Ukraine is that it's kind of like the pivotal point of of elucidating, as you said, the the tremendous change underway in the world where we're moving from where people are fighting mightily to get from underneath this U.S. imperialist hegemon. Uh, people want to uh, strike out and have a more sovereignty within their country to get out from under the boot of the uh, International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, which has so, as you said, you know, just kind of uh, – extended the U.S. hegemony in their countries, uh, put them under the control of these institutions that don't foster human development, aren't fostering peace, but are rather fostering, you know, the control of corporate corporations and international capital over their lives. And, you know, just in the recent struggles that we've been Involved in here when we had been, we were outside the embassy of Venezuela, where you know the, the Trump administration illegally you know stole their embassy and gave it to a fake president named Juan Guaido, or you know just something like that. Recent, you know, this is a, a an example of a country that was under these tremendous uh, sanctions brought on by the United States, and they're not even sanctions; they're they're uh, you, you know coercive measures that the United States is able to put on a country like Venezuela or on Cuba or on Nicaragua or Iran now, you know, just or or Russia, obviously. Right. And so these are efforts of countries 
We see all around us efforts of countries to fight back, to get out from underneath the boot of this uh, uh, hegemony that is, includes the IMF, includes the World Bank, includes uh, the Fed, includes the United States. And it's uh, the ability it's had since World War II to control so much of the world economy through the, the dollar as a, a like universal currency. So what we see happening in Ukraine is, is uh, the end of that, of the end of Russia's relationship to that system. It marks the, you know, Russia turning east uh, toward China and the tremendous relationship being built between Russia and China and other people being brought into an orbit that is turning east. And we know that Europe uh, is, in many ways, especially Germany, has been uh, so sabotaged by its so-called ally in the United States so that it can't, you know, even have the cheap energy that's allowed it to become a, you know, a, a military or not military, but industrial giant, you know, in Europe, right? So... They may have energy for this winter, uh, but, you know, so much of German industry is being shut down, and it's, some of it's even come here to the U.S. So, you know, we're, we're, I'm just kind of talking about this as a time, a moment that we're living in when so much of the world is just changing. Without question. And a shout out to the by any means necessary chat. Uh, Farmerson says IMF stands for Imperial Mafia Frosters. Well, that's a fact. And uh, I really uh, appreciate you raising this uh, Lenin quote, uh, uh, Esther. I mean, it's one of my favorites, and I think you're correct. Decades are happening right before our eyes. And, you know, the thing about that, I think when people realize that, about how quickly and swiftly things are moving on a number of levels, I think it can have a disorienting effect on people. It's almost like, you know, things are happening so rapidly that, I mean, it's dizzying and uh, uh, can really uh, uh, take people uh, uh, out of sorts, I think. And I, and I believe that there can be a fear that goes along with that. I believe there there's a kind of hopelessness and a feeling of not knowing what to do and perhaps an intensified sense of isolation that, that, that happens because of all of these different issues that are intertwined and interlocked and seemingly uh, uh, colliding all at once. But see, this to me, Esther, is the value of uh, finding ourselves in movements, in organizations that are dedicated to uh, uh, fighting all of these uh, uh, institutions and systems that we have been discussing so far this uh, hour. And beyond that, uh, beyond fighting the system, actually keeping an eye on overturning uh, this system and bringing about uh, a, so, uh, a system that uh, actually speaks to people's needs. And namely, I would say it would have to be a system of socialism that brings that about. Because I feel like at this juncture, there's really no escaping the fact that capitalism lie at the root of so many of humanity's problems. And I think particularly for us in the United States, the heart, the beating heart of world imperialism, I think there's a particular importance in us uh, uh, doing that. And so in the last couple of minutes here, Esther, uh, I just wanted to give you a chance to uh, say anything you might have to say about uh, a sort of the systemic root of all this uh, and how we should fight it. You know, I some of the other stories that I was looking at, 
I was looking at uh, Corey Bush, uh, uh, Representative Corey Bush of um, in Congress, basically um, condemning these lawyers, many uh, lawyers for mainly Republicans, I think, who are fighting the ability of people to access the student loan relief and bringing, calling them out because what they're trying to do is say that um, the small relief, which is major to many people, helping out many people, this life-changing relief for some people to get $20,000 off their back, right? But uh, these lawyers trying to uh, prevent students and families from getting this relief, saying it's illegal, and this case is being heard right now. And then also I looked at a case of how, you know, we talk about food deserts, but there's something called a maternal care desert. And there's an article I read in Common Dreams that talked about how uh, it says poor hardest hit as maternity care deserts grow across the U.S. And so these maternity care deserts are particularly acute in areas where um, these right-wing politicians have also outlawed abortion or are attempting to make it you know, illegal to get an abortion. So you can't get an abortion, and then you, you don't have the care in your community to have a baby and then to care for your child and care for yourself after birth. And so when people want to say, okay, this is, a, this is the best country in the world, this is the richest country in the world, and we can't do any better, and you're talking all that socialist stuff, and that sounds real scary to me because all I hear about uh, socialism is, how poor the people are in Cuba, how poor the people are in Venezuela, and uh, how, you know, I guess before my time, people used to talk about, their parents would say, you know, people are starving in China, eat your food, you know. And so generations of Americans have been fed a steady diet of of anti-communist, anti-socialist rhetoric that allows them to think that whatever we have here and no matter how much of it is taken away, it's better than what's over there. And so part of what we have to do with our media, with our journalism, and through just organizing is to show people, no, another world is possible, another world is better. And it really it really starts with uh, understanding that, you know, people organizing is what makes all the difference and that we this is this is our country. You know, we are working people are the biggest class in this country, and we have to be willing to organize and fight back. Absolutely, absolutely. I agree with you, Esther, that another world is possible, and it will only come if we fight for it. There is really just no shortcut or getting around that. And that new world that we're fighting for, I think, has to be a socialist one. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch Steady See. One thank Esther Rivera so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.